Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that has just been read. And now, as we go into 1 Thessalonians, we pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, with deep conviction, may you impress upon our hearts your truth. May you open up our eyes to see more of your glory in the Scriptures. May we have a clear understanding of this text uh, that we may come away with hearts that are ready to submit to you with faith and obedience. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the start of a new year, we are starting off a new sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians that we are calling Foundations of a Flourishing Church. I think it's fitting to describe the church of Thessalonica as a flourishing church because based on this letter, it appears that the church is doing pretty well. They've been growing in love and holiness. They've become an example to other churches in their area, and they've endured persecution all while still keeping the faith. Now, as you may know, many of Paul's letters were written to churches in order to confront theological or moral error going on within that particular church, but there's nothing like that here in 1 Thessalonians. The letter was written because Paul's stay in that city was abruptly cut short by persecution, and so he was worried that the fledgling church would, would be crushed by this heavy wave of opposition, and so he had sent Timothy to go and check on them, and now after Timothy has returned and has given him a good report telling Paul that the Thessalonians are still walking with the Lord, now he pens this letter in order to express his appreciation for them and to provide them some instructions that he didn't get a chance to pass on earlier. So what you get when you study 1 Thessalonians is a good look at a relatively healthy church. And one of the advantages of studying this book is that it offers a good example for churches like ours, churches today, to emulate. So that begs the question, what were some of the key characteristics of this flourishing church? What were the foundational elements that contributed to its flourishing, especially in the midst of all this opposition coming from the larger society? That's what we hope to explore as we get into this sermon series that we're calling Foundations of a Flourishing Church. Now, in today's introductory message, we're not going to get very much um, into 1 Thessalonians beyond the first verse. So let me just read that to you again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, in this letter's greeting, it tells us that the senders of this epistle, this letter, included Paul and his missionary team, which um, you find Silas, that's the Greek equivalent of uh, the Roman name Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, the recipient of this letter is the church in the city of Thessalonica, and that's the capital city of Macedonia. Macedonia was once the ancient kingdom that was ruled by Alexander the Great, but now it was a Roman province, and its three principal cities were Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea, and those are all three cities that Paul had visited during his second missionary journey. And that's all recounted for us in the book of Acts. 
And that's where actually we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We're going to consider the historical background of the church's origin by looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, which focuses on Paul's first visit to Thessalonica. What we're going to see is that one of the key characteristics of this church, one of its foundational elements, is the threat that they posed to the larger society in which they resided. The Thessalonian church did not fit comfortably in society. They did not blend simply into the background. Now, they were seen as a threat because they had learned from Paul, and now they preached to others a subversive message that was turning the world upside down. At the heart of their faith, was news about a coming king who demands allegiance and accepts no rivals. This king and and all of his decrees were a direct threat to the idols of the culture around them. And that's what elicited so much anger, so much opposition. Their message about a coming king threatened the foundational idols that undergirded the lives and the livelihood of their fellow countrymen. The church preaching this gospel posed an existential threat. You know, it really makes you wonder if the same could be said of us. Would Houston Chinese Church pose a threat to anyone? Would the larger society be threatened by us at all? Would we be accused of turning the world upside down? Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that our church should try to be threatening or or try to be offensive. We shouldn't intend to do any harm or to cause any offense. But the point is, is that if we're a flourishing church, flourishing in our preaching of the gospel, flourishing in our making of disciples who observe all that the king has commanded, then our flourishing faith will inevitably challenge the culture around us and pose a threat to society's false sense of peace and stability. That is what should happen. But more often than not, we just blend into the background. Our lives individually, And our life together as the church are barely distinguishable from those around us. We don't threaten the culture when we largely imitate the culture. So church, this morning, what I want to do is I want to challenge us to become imitators of this flourishing church in 1 Thessalonians. Just as we're told that they became imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy and the Lord, most of all, we want to imitate them as well. So focusing on 1 Thessalonians in general and Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 9 in particular, we're going to see four descriptions of this flourishing church, which can be really four aspirations for our church to emulate so that Lord willing, we too can be a church that is turning the world upside down. So that's where we're going this morning. Come with me in the book of Acts and also in 1 Thessalonians. Now, uh, the first description of the Thessalonian church that really jumps out in Acts chapter 17 is that it is a persecuted church in need of encouragement. It's a persecuted church in need of encouragement. 
We're told that when Paul and company arrived in the city, they maintained their usual custom of first going to the local synagogue and trying to win a hearing with their fellow kinsmen. They uh, there were told that for three Sabbaths, Paul re- uh, reasoned in the synagogue with his fellow Jews, using the Old Testament to try to prove that the Christ, the long-expected Messiah, would come to rescue, not by conquering over his enemies, but by suffering for his enemies, by dying and, and rising again from the dead. And his point was that the Jesus of his gospel, the Jesus that he preaches, who died and rose again, is that Messiah that they've all been waiting for. Now, according to verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined them, along with a great many God-fearing Greeks. Those are Gentiles who worshipped in the synagogue, and also uh, many of the leading women in town. But verse 5 says that Paul's effective preaching stirred up the jealousy of the synagogue leaders. And so they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of a believer named Jason, who was hosting Paul and company. But for some reason, Paul wasn't there. And so the mob ended up dragging Jason and some of the other brothers in the church before the authorities and accused them of conspiring with, quote, Men who have turned the world upside down. Now that there is an interesting choice of words. They were being accused of social upheaval, of overturning social norms. Now, of course, the city officials were disturbed by these charges, but they didn't imprison Jason and the others. Instead, they took money and security and let them go. And most likely it meant that they had to promise that Paul and his team would leave town and never return, or else Jason and the others would be punished more severely. So after being torn away so abruptly, you can understand why Paul feared that all of this persecution coming so soon and so strong might result in their falling away from the faith. Because he understands human nature. He understands how we respond to hardship. He knows that when you're experiencing affliction, you're more susceptible to the lie that God must be angry with you. When you're going through hardship, you're you're tempted to, to question the goodness of God or maybe even God's existence. Like the seeds that fell on rocky ground, They spring up, but since they have no root, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. That's Paul's concern, that the Thessalonian church may have simply been rocky ground. And so that's why Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, reminds them, and us believers uh, by extension, that we are predestined for afflictions. He says this, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as as it has come to pass, and just as you know. So that's what Paul would tell all of the churches that he planted. He never sugarcoated the gospel. He he never promised your best life now. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it says that he went around, quote, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, through many 
tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, but will be persecuted. So Christian, do you understand that persecution for the sake of Christ is your birthright? It's a sign of your identification with Christ and his apostles. And so it's not a reason to grumble. It's actually a reason to rejoice. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But what would it mean? What would it say if we're not experiencing this kind of persecution? What if no one is reviling us? What if no one is uttering any kind of evil against us? What if the world doesn't even take notice of us as a church? I don't think we should feel blessed to have somehow avoided persecution. No, we should feel ashamed that perhaps we don't pose a threat to the culture because we've largely imitated the culture. Let that not be said of us. Let that not be true of our church. Let's be defined as a church by a message that turns the world upside down, not one that fits comfortably in the world as is. You know, in fact, if you do want our church to grow, then we should actually be welcoming persecution. Because the testimony of Scripture and the experience of church history tells us that persecuted churches tend to not flounder, but flourish. The flourishing churches are the persecuted churches. That was true of the Thessalonian church. We're told in chapter 1 of Thessalonians, verses 7 to 8, that they, quote, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. They were flourishing. Their reputation as a young, promising church preceded them. And that leads to our second description. This was a promising church, but one still in need of instruction. It's a promising church in need of instruction. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that's Paul's primary reason for writing it's not to correct any heresy. It's not to confront any false teacher like he does in other letters. He's writing to continue discipling these believers to give them further instruction in faith and godliness. Because remember, his discipleship lessons were cut short when he had to quickly leave town. Now, when we get into this letter, you're going to see that whatever anxieties that Paul had over their spiritual life were quickly relieved when Timothy came back with that good report. And so now he's overjoyed to hear that the church is flourishing. And so in this letter, there are going to be a few times where Paul is basically just saying to the, to the believers, 
I don't really need to write to you about this command because you're already doing it. Just, just keep on doing it. Just keep on doing what you're doing even more and more. That's, that's what he says a number of times because this church is doing well. It's flourishing. What Paul realizes is that, you know, while he may have been absent and unable to instruct them on how to walk in holiness and how to please the Lord, it really doesn't mean that they were deprived of godly instruction because they still had the gospel. The gospel had come to this church, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So yes, to be deprived of a spiritual leader like the Apostle Paul was a huge loss and potentially devastating to any church, but what they had was more than enough. They still had the gospel and they had the Holy Spirit who continued their instruction and enabled them to flourish as a church. And so by the end of this letter, in chapter 5, verse 12, we see reference to, quote, those who labor among you and are over you, over you in the Lord. And so in Paul's absence, the Holy Spirit had raised up others from among the congregation to continue the work of ministry. Apparently, Apparently, you don't need a gifted, charismatic leader in order to have a flourishing church. Now, I know that makes no sense within American church culture, because in our church culture, all the flourishing churches out there seem to be identified with some key leader. To be deprived of that leader, either through sickness or death or a moral failure, would devastate that church. But that's all the more reason, that's all the more reason why a church should not grow dependent on any one leader. The Thessalonians had become an example to all of our churches. They proved that even in the absence of a key leader, a church can continue to flourish if the gospel of God is their foundational cornerstone. And if the Spirit of God is moving mightily in their midst, personally instructing them and raising up others from among the congregation to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know, many of our church members uh, would be aware that we are right now as a church developing a vision proposal that, Lord willing, will give us guidance as a church for the next five to ten years. It's gone through a lengthy developmental process, and now we have recently shared it with our church members along with a detailed execution plan. And there's going to be, uh, actually, next Sunday, next Sunday evening, a church-wide Q&A session that's going to be held online, giving you an opportunity to ask questions, to find out more about our church's vision. And so we do encourage you to attend that. You'll find more information about it in the announcements. But, you know, one component that I would like to highlight in our vision proposal is our objective to establish an equipping culture in our church, to establish an equipping culture, a culture that really doesn't depend on any one leader, but values ministry apprenticeship and ministry replication. 
And so that's where everyone serving at every level of ministry is not trying to preserve power or preserve influence for themselves, but to give it away, to delegate it to others, to equip others to serve, to empower others to influence. We want to develop a culture where everyone serving in the church sees it as their responsibility to raise up their own replacement. We are mindful, we want to be mindful of building in to others, equipping them. And that starts with leaders like me and any other pastor in our church. Let's be intentional not to imitate the celebrity culture all around us. Instead, let's imitate the example of the, of the, of the Thessalonians. A church that flourishes not by depending on the personality of a gifted leader, but by depending on a gospel faithfully preached and on the power of the Holy Spirit working through the ministry of many within the congregation. That's part of our vision as we look to the future. So, friends, we've seen so far that the church in Thessalonica is a persecuted church, and a promising church. Well, thirdly, it can be described as a pagan church in need of sanctification. A pagan church in need of sanctification. Now, by pagan, uh, we mean that it was mostly comprised of Gentile believers. If we look back at Acts 17, we recall that the Jewish community in Thessalonica largely rejected Paul and the gospel. And so there definitely were some key converts among the Jews, but we can deduce from the letter itself that most of the church members were from a Gentile pagan background. From what we know of ancient Thessalonica, based on archaeological evidence, their society was greatly influenced by Greco-Roman religion. Researchers have unearthed a number of statues depicting gods and goddesses like Athena, Artemis, Aphrodite, Demeter, Hermes, and Dionysius. And we know what kind of religious practices took place in these pagan temples. We know that many of those practices were, were sexually explicit in nature, and they included wicked practices like cult prostitution. And so just keep all of that in mind. Keep in mind that most of these Thessalonian believers had been converted out of a, of a life and lifestyle where it was socially acceptable and normal to feast with your friends at the temple of a pagan god dedicated to, to some god or goddess, that it was normal to have sex with a temple prostitute as a supposed act of worship, and then to just return back to your household to spend the rest of the evening with your wife and children. That was normal in those days. That was acceptable behavior among pagans. And that's why Paul felt that it was necessary to remind them of God's will for their holiness. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this 
church existing in a pagan society awash in immorality needed a strong reminder that it is God's will for them to be different. That's what it means to be holy, to be sanctified. It it literally means to be set apart, to not be conformed to the social norms around you, particularly the sexual norms of a pagan society. Now, church, do, do you recognize our church in 1 Thessalonians? Do you recognize how similar our context is to the Thessalonian church? I mean, though we exist in very different cultures, yet both of our cultures have elevated sex and the passion of lust to a godlike status, where it's revered with unquestioned authority, where you're not allowed anymore to criticize anyone's pursuit of sexual fulfillment. Do you see how that that pagan society in which the Thessalonians existed is actually the same kind of society that we are living in today? And so that means it's also God's will for us to be sanctified, to be holy. Now, it doesn't mean that he wants us to be a church full of prudes, to be full of priggish people who have who have apparently never struggled with sexual brokenness and, and look down at people who, who do struggle with, as, as these weak-willed perverts. No, that's not what it means to be holy. Sadly, that's what people think when they hear Christians talking about being holy, but that's not what it means. That's not what a holy church looks like. A holy church is a set-apart church filled with broken people, and that includes sexually broken people. But we are also those who have been changed into new people by the power of the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, and was raised to life to give us new life, that gospel liberates us from the bondage of sin, including sexual sins, which results within us forming within us a very different view of sex, a distinctly Christian sexual ethic. Now, I know many assume that that means having a negative view of sex. A lot of people think that Christians are anti-sex, that our goal is to suppress sexual desires in ourselves and in everyone else. But actually, the Christian sexual ethic is unashamedly sex-positive. Granted, that is, that we understand sex as a gift from God to be enjoyed as he designed it within the confines of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. What the Christian sexual ethic opposes and what a holy church must confront within its own members is that elevation of sex and the passion of lust to an unquestioned godlike status and authority where someone's identity can now be defined by their sexual desires and sexual preferences, where the only rightful bounds of of sexual expression are the bounds of our imagination, where the only meaningful ethic is the ethic of consent. That is the prevailing view of sex in our society. That is the unquestioned, unimpeachable sexual ethic of our day. 
And church, it is the will of God for us to be different, for us to be sanctified and set apart, that we abstain from sexual immorality and that we maintain a distinctly Christian sexual ethic. There's no doubt that's going to run directly counter to the culture at large. Biblical teaching on sex and gender isn't just dismissed by the larger society. No, it is increasingly viewed as bigoted and hateful. And we are bound to experience greater pressure to bend the knee and to bow to the idols and to the ideology of this pagan society in which we reside. But that just leads to our fourth description of the Thessalonian church and the kind of church that we should strive to be like. Here we see in the fourth description, a political church in need of courage. A political church in need of courage. Now, I realize we just came out of a very divisive political season, and so to speak of a political church I know can be confusing and needs further explanation. What I'm going to do is, is to argue for a categorical difference between a political church and a partisan church. A partisan church is a church that has cozied up with one or the other political party whose preaching and teaching really has become indistinguishable from that party's platform, who insists that all serious-minded Christians will support this particular party or vote for that particular candidate. That is a partisan church, and that's not the kind of church we want to be. We're talking about a political church. And I'm going to argue that every church comprised of serious-minded Christians will be a political church because the gospel that we preach is a political statement in itself. It doesn't just offer us some private instruction for how to conduct our devotional life. It doesn't restrict its commands uh, to just simply what goes on within the four walls of a church building or within the privacy of our homes. No, the gospel is, first and foremost, news about a king and his kingdom. It's about what this king has done to make peace with rebels by, by taking their punishment upon himself. And now it's about living under his kingship. It's about his kingly authority and his laws that are to be taught to and observed by all of his kingdom citizens. That is political speech, not partisan speech. We're not, we're not shilling for any, any earthly candidate or party, but we are speaking on behalf of a king. And we are calling people to pledge allegiance to this king and this king alone. All, all of that is highly political stuff. The synagogue leaders in Acts 17 recognized political speech when they heard it. They knew that the kind of speech coming from Paul is not speech limited to the private sphere. They recognized that these Christians were speaking into the public square and they were turning the world upside down. They had abandoned social norms. They weren't feasting in temples anymore. They weren't engaging in sexual practices outside of marriage anymore. They had altogether rejected the civic deities, the city gods. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, 
Paul mentions how the church now has this reputation for having turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They were openly rejecting the idols of their culture. So ironically, because they did that, because they rejected idols, these early Christians were actually considered in those days to be the atheists of their society because they didn't believe in the gods. And that's partly what made them a public threat. They were often blamed for natural disasters like earthquakes or volcanoes, uh, which were attributed to the gods. Christians, apparently in the minds of the pagans, had incurred the wrath of the gods by their disbelief. And now everyone in the city was paying for it. But, you know, that wasn't the most threatening aspect of the church. Let me read verse 9 again, and then I'll read on into verse 10. The church was known for having turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And hear this. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, one of the key themes in 1 Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ. When we get into this letter, you're going to see how every chapter in this book ends with a reference to the coming of Christ. And that word for coming, parousia, the Greek word parousia, that word is actually an official term for an imperial visit. And so this, this basic Christian belief that Jesus is coming again is actually a very subversive doctrine. It's a political statement. Christians believe and we teach that Christ, the King, the King of all kings, is coming on an imperial visit to establish his kingdom over against all the claims of all rivals. That is turning things upside down. The synagogue leaders definitely picked up on that political statement. Listen to their accusation in Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Christians, they were viewed not just as atheists, but as traitors who refused to bend the knee to Caesar. They wouldn't bow to the will of the prevailing culture. They, they didn't condone what everyone else condoned. They didn't celebrate what everyone else celebrates. They had formed for themselves a political church that was propagating a socially subversive faith. It was turning the world upside down. That's how the church was viewed, and that's why they were seen as a public threat. Now, on one hand, it is a serious mistake to view the church as a threat because Christians actually make excellent citizens in any country because it's our duty to be conscientious, law-abiding citizens. The church has no mandate or mission to overthrow earthly governments by acts of sedition. But on the other hand, that duty we speak of to submit to governing authorities is a duty imposed upon us by our king. And so inherently, it implies that we serve another king, another authority. So Christian, do you realize if you say Christ is king, that is political speech. 
That claim has unavoidable political implications. If you mean it, then you must refuse to give any ruler, any government, any ideology your ultimate allegiance that belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. So brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this, to think about how we are living in a secular age that grows ever more hostile to the Christian faith. The non-believing world is starting to realize that Christianity can't just be tucked away in our homes and in our hearts. They're becoming more aware and they're realizing, rightfully so, that the gospel is a political statement claiming the rightful rule of a coming king that Christians have a view of the good life, the kind of life that contributes to a flourishing society that is distinctly different from that of the prevailing culture around us. Our gospel says Christ is king, and the king calls for ultimate allegiance and obedience to his word. And I know that is considered a socially subversive message. It is now considered a public threat. So what a political church like ours, a church that preaches that very message, what we need most desperately right now is courage. We need courage. Courage to stand firm. Courage to stand on on the right side of God and not to fear any accusation that we're on the wrong side of history. Because remember, we serve a God who reigns throughout history and over history. We must stand with the Lord. And this is what you're going to find in the foundation of any flourishing church. The testimony of Scripture and the experience of church history tells us that churches that flourish in the long run are not the ones who take their cues from the culture. It's not the kind of church that that changes the message in order to placate the culture. The flourishing churches are the ones who are courageous enough to preach a socially unacceptable and subversive message, one that has the potential to turn the world upside down. Let's be that kind of church, friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this new year and now a chance to go into a new book of the Bible. May you bless our journey through 1 Thessalonians. And may you, O Lord, do a mighty work within our church, strengthening our foundations, enabling us by the gospel and the power of your spirit to courageously proclaim your gospel to the ends of the earth. May we be a threat to this world in the way that the Thessalonians were, that we may simply be faithful to you and to your message. May that be our legacy. May that be what defines our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.